This is the story of two unlikely friends. They came from different worlds. They lived very different lives. They believed very different things. They had every reason to distrust one another, to judge one another, to hate one another. One was actively persecuting and killing the other's friends. The thought of being in the same room with one another, let alone helping each other, was so ridiculous it was laughable. It literally took an act of God. Their names were Anne Atwater and C.P. Ellis. Anne was a poor African-American woman who had grown up in the segregated South and had become, in her words, an activist with a loud mouth. She first learned community organizing from Howard Fuller, a charismatic young man who showed up at her door in the mid-1960s when she was living in a dilapidated housing in Durham's segregated Haytai community. Atwater wanted basic repairs to the house she was renting, and Fuller helped her to get them. And then he sent her to school and helped her become an organizer. Durham's lunch counters were long since integrated, but Atwater knew all too well that she couldn't afford to eat at them. Though he wasn't about to admit it, Atwater knew that her foe, C.P. Ellis, couldn't afford to eat out downtown either. The son of a mill worker from East Durham, Ellis had grown up in poverty and struggled to keep his family afloat running a small gas station in a factory town where the bosses made their fortunes on the backs of poor black and white people. Ellis had joined the Klan as a young man and took pride in his white identity. Truth be told, he didn't have much else to take pride in. Anne and CP weren't looking for friendship, certainly not in one another. Atwater and Ellis had spent years rallying their competing bases to outshout each other in public debates over civil rights. Ellis's association with the Klan made him a threat to Atwater's very life and well-being. But in 1971, when the AFL-CIO received a federal grant to help Durham comply with the 1954 board decision that had outlawed segregation in public schools, Atwater and Ellis each agreed to co-chair the process in order to keep the other from controlling the outcome. I don't know if either of them had a Damascus Road moment. Neither of them recounts hearing the voice of God. They were more geared up for a fight. But they were both convicted and motivated. One might even say they were called. And this pivotal moment did something that neither of them were planning on. It put them in a room together where transformation was possible. Like C.P. and Anne, today's scripture is the story of two unlikely friends. 
They lived very different lives. They believed very different things. They had every reason to distrust one another. One was actively persecuting and killing the other's friends. The thought of being in the same room together, let alone helping each other, was beyond their wildest imagination. But God has a way of surprising us and defying our expectations. Today's scripture is classically referred to as Saul's conversion story or Paul's call story. Professor of homiletics Wesley Allen argues that there is no story in Acts more important than Saul, soon to be Paul's call and his encounter with the risen Christ. And it is, to be fair, one of the greats. Classically told, Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus Damascus fits neatly in a line with all of the other classic call stories that take an unlikely character and use them to bring about God's healing and reconciling and liberating work. It was true for Abraham and Samuel, for Moses and Isaiah, for Jeremiah and Jonah, and for so many others throughout Scripture as well. God spoke to them by name and told them in one way or another, get up and go, I've got a plan for you. Often there was resistance, often there was anxiety and fear, Often the task felt too great or the situation too dire for even God to work through. But eventually they find a way to respond, here I am. And God works through them in powerful and transformative ways. And many times the call of God works just like that. But I will be honest that I have always struggled with Saul's conversion story. In part because my own experience of feeling called to follow Jesus didn't come with lights and sound effects and the high drama of Saul and the other biblical greats. In part because I've never heard the voice of God in the ways these stories describe. And in part, because the stories always seem to be about men. But mostly I've struggled with call stories like Paul's because it leaves me feeling like in order to be a disciple, I have to be the next Abraham or Moses or Isaiah or Paul, and that anything less than that is somehow less faithful or less worthy. Thankfully, despite the way our Bible labels this story as the conversion of Saul, today's story is not one call story, but two. Because the story isn't complete without this quiet, unassuming disciple named Ananias of Damascus, who was minding his own business. We know almost nothing about Ananias except what we get in these few short verses of Scripture. He was a disciple and a follower of the way, as the early Christians were often called. He lived in Damascus, where Saul was led blind and disoriented. And his call was to go and pray for his enemy. 
In some ways, Christ's call to Ananias was simple. Get up and go. Go and pray with Saul. That's it. Take a walk across town to a friend's house. I'll even give you the street name. Say a quick prayer for this stranger passing through. That's all I'm asking. But in some ways, Christ's call was terrifying. Go risk your life. Say a prayer with this man who has made his career out of threatening and murdering people like you. And who has permission from the high priests to arrest any followers of Jesus. Go lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. If it works, when he sees you, he has orders at best to arrest you and at worst to have you killed. Ananias didn't know that Saul had had an encounter with the risen Lord on the way to Damascus. He didn't know that Saul was experiencing a radical spiritual transformation. He had to reconcile what he had heard about Saul from reliable sources around town with the voice of God who told him to walk into enemy territory and help a man that was out to get him because Christ was going to use that man to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. The bravery in this story, the faith in this story, is not Saul's, but Ananias's. Saul was blinded and led into Damascus. His fate was in the hands of his fellow travels, travelers and the hospitality of strangers. Everything that happened in his conversion story happened to him. Ananias, on the other hand, had to summon his courage to do both what was very simple and what was very hard. Had Ananias not found the strength, not trusted in Christ, not walked across town and prayed for his enemy, Saul would have spent the rest of his life as a blind man wondering what his life might have been. Thankfully, Ananias rose to the task and dared, like the many faithful before him, to respond to the word of God despite the risk. He does exactly what the risen Christ called him to do. Get up and go to your neighbor's house and lay hands on this man named Saul. Ananias and Saul had no business being in the same room together. On the surface, neither was particularly interested in the other person's flourishing. But something transformative happened in that brave space when they came together so that neither of them would ever be the same. Everything that transpired from there for Paul, the churches he founded, the sermons he gave, the gospel he shared, was possible because of a little man who disappears back into the shadows of Scripture, who was brave enough to pray for his enemy and to stick around and break bread with him. Likewise, for Atwater and Ellis, the unexpected happened. 
They entered into the hard work of laboring together long enough to discover that they actually wanted the same things. A good education for their kids, a living wage for their work, and equal access to what they all needed to thrive. Atwater and Ellis didn't just become the best of enemies, as the documentary made in their honor calls them. They became friends. And they worked together to fight poverty and systemic racism for the rest of their lives. When Ellis died in 2005, it was Atwater who delivered his eulogy. No matter your political persuasion, we are living in a time when the division and discord in this country feels insurmountable. In a time when everything about our political and social climate feels fraught with conflict and fear. In a time when our pandemic isolation thwarts genuine conversation. In a time when we trade in the internet cur currency of vitriol and insults. And it makes me wonder if what we really need isn't a blinding light on the Damascus Road, but the courage and faith to enter into brave spaces in our own neighborhoods, like Ananias and Saul, like Anne and CP. And to do such simple things as to pray together, to see one another, really see each other, and to remember again that ultimately what we want is each other's flourishing. Perhaps God's call to us today is to be a faithful disciple like Ananias in the simplest of ways through intentional encounters in our own front yards. Seeking to follow God's call to Ananias today, a team of women set out to do just that. Reverend Jen Bailey, co-founder of the People's Supper, argues that relationships move at the speed of trust and change moves at the speed of relationships. There is no movement for justice or equity that didn't start with relationship. It doesn't happen singularly, she says. To that end, Reverend Bailey and her co-founder, Lennon Flowers, have committed not to rallies or to marches, but to hosting some 1,500 dinner parties that gather individuals across the political divide to transform the hardest conversations and most isolating experiences into sources of community support, candid conversation, and forward movement using the age-old sacred practice of breaking bread. Reverend Bailey describes how she came to this work. She writes, I am a black woman ordained in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. I am the breathing legacy of one of America's greatest original sins, the child of people stolen from the West African coasts to labor in the fields of Florida, Georgia, and Arkansas. She writes, for the last four years, I have folded into myself, my arms wrapped tightly around my knees, 
And after the last election, I found them resting on my heaving chest. And yet when I opened my mouth to cry out to God, as I often do in moments of hopelessness, no sound emerged. Rocking back and forth on the cool linoleum floor, she uttered the words that she could only find. I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe. She recalls then that this was the same year that she had lost her mom on Mother's Day after a 14-year battle with cancer. And what she remembers in that moment on the linoleum floor was the presence of her mom coming over her saying, we've never been safe. Safety is an illusion that's only afforded to a few people. And so the choice is that some of us have to be brave. So she and her unlikely friend, Lennon Flowers, who met through the shared grief of losing moms to cancer, have been responding to God's call to be brave ever since. And they're doing so in the simplest way they know how, over supper. Reverend Bailey recalls that some of the holiest and most sacred conversations she has ever had happened over the ancient practice of breaking bread together, where relationships can form and transformation can happen. Saul's conversion began on the road to Damascus with a blinding light that disoriented him and opened the door for transformation. But Saul's conversion was incomplete without that unexpected blessing from a perceived enemy that caused the scales to fall from his eyes and a holy, brave space in their neighbor's home to provide an opportunity to share a meal together. I don't know how God is calling you in this particular time and place in your faith journey. Maybe you will find yourself hearing the booming voice of God. Maybe you will be blinded by a light that you cannot ignore. But maybe God is calling you, inviting you to be just a little bit brave. Maybe God is inviting you to build a relationship with a neighbor so that the scales can fall from your eyes, helping you to see your neighbor more fully and them to see you more fully as well. Maybe God is inviting you to share a conversation or a meal with someone with whom you disagree. Maybe God is, in, is issuing an invitation to brave space through the words of poet and justice advocate Mickey Scott Bay Jones, who calls us today in her poem, read to us by our own Linda Johnson. Together we will create brave space because there's no such thing as safe space. We live in the real world. We all carry scars and we have all caused wounds. In this space, we seek to turn down the volume of the outside world. We amplify voices that fight to be heard. We call each other to more truth and more love. We have the right to start somewhere and continue to grow. 
we have the responsibility to examine what we think we know. <laughs> we will not be perfect. This space will not be perfect. It will not always be what we wish it to be. But it will be our brave space together. And we will work on it side by side.